Today's podcast is on health and human rights and the work of the Lawyers Collective. The Lawyers Collective is an Indian legal organization started in 1981 by prominent human rights attorneys Indira J. Singh and Anand Grover. The Lawyers Collective litigates constitutional cases, advises on policy, and runs a global health and human rights database, which will be the focus of our discussion. With me today, I have Gabriel Armas Cordona, a legal officer with Lawyers Collective who helps run their database in Delhi. Welcome. Hi, Alex. Great to be here. So can you tell us a little bit how this global health and human rights database started, how people contribute to it, and how it's being utilized? Sure. Um, I would love to talk about the database. The database was a core part of my work there, and it is a phenomenal tool. Um, what it is is essentially a database, which basically any lawyer is aware of, uh, that collects cases. Um, but unlike most databases that focus on only a single jurisdiction, this is a database of cases from all over the world. And instead of being jurisdiction-based, it's thematic. It's based on uh, focused around health and human rights. And we interpret that broadly. So what we do is we essentially look at cases from all over the world that affect health and human rights in some way um, that could then be interpreted or used by activists, lawyers, technocrats, anyone to promote health and human rights within their own jurisdiction. The, the purpose of this database is to be a useful tool. And so we take these cases from all over the world, uh, translate them, and put them up uh, using a tagging system that you know, allows people to easily search through them and find something useful for them. That sounds amazing. So how are cases discovered and added to the database? So the database is actually a joint operation between Lawyers Collective and the O'Neill Institute, which is based in Georgetown. Anand Grover, the director of Lawyers Collective, did originate the idea, but it has been a team effort. And the database would not be where it is now if not for the help of dozens of NGOs from all over the world. If nothing else, NGOs have provided the, the pointing us to cases that have, um, you know, key cases within their jurisdiction so to make sure that we can fill out the database and have it be a useful resource. Um, but we've also partnered uh, with other NGOs in a more in-depth way where they've actually provided a lot of the summaries and done a lot more of the groundwork necessary to have the database be useful. Now, do you have any feedback from the database? So when litigators use the knowledge from the database, do they tell you I'm using this for this particular case and this is how it helped? Sometimes a lot of the uh, first users of the database were basically friends of the director, Anand Grover. And so they would definitely mention to him, oh, yeah, I, I pulled a case from this and it was very useful. Uh, sadly, um, most people don't go out of their way to send a friendly email in that way. So we don't know how much impact the, the web, the database has directly like that. We can see from indirect things. I remember how many hits the website gets. Like we, we were definitely growing and it was for, you know, such a niche idea. Like we don't expect to have many, many hits, but we would be getting well over. Actually, I don't want to say exactly what the numbers are, but I right. know that it was definitely growing week after week, which was nice to see. That's fantastic. From the information gathered from the database, what are the main global health and human rights issues that are being litigated? Whew. Oh, there's a lot. Uh, I mean, it can vary dramatically. I mean, there's a lot of health and human rights issues. Uh, we, we interpret that broadly. So a lot of jurisdictions don't have a right to health, uh, and that's perfectly fine. And we then look at how other legal tools are used to promote health and human rights uh, without calling it the right to health. So actually, a large chunk of our cases come from the United Kingdom 
and from the United States, where there is no official right to health, but health plays such a big role in a lot of different policies. It can really vary from, um, let's say, access to basic medical care for prisoners to, let's see, uh, employment discrimination for people with, uh, that use certain types of medication. Okay. That I'm thinking more on the defensive side, just like the individual rights. If we're looking at more of the social concerns, then it could be access to medicine in general for larger populations. That's more of a policy question, typically. Um, how has austerity programs, especially in Europe, slashed so- social services and led to decreases in the public health of a particular country? Well, what about in particular where health intersects with the environment? So the right to access to clean water and access to proper air supply, for instance, any jurisprudence in that area? Absolutely. Um, environmental concerns have traditionally been viewed as distinct from public health, or at least public health activists focus more on medicine and issues like that and did not focus as much on um, general pollutants. Maybe like there'd be this, you know, a very uh, localized pollutant that could be concerning public health. Uh, but this is the 21st century. You know, that old fashioned narrow approach is, is done away with. And so a lot of activists um, uh, and lawyers have focused on how to how to show a specific issue or concern isn't affecting just some one narrow right, but is affecting a broad array of rights. And so uh, in India, uh, environmental concerns are huge. Often development is done without enough environmental protections. And especially in big cities like Delhi, uh, the general population suffers a lot of ill health because of the policy choices that are chosen. And due to a lack of policy choices. For instance, that Avi, one of the biggest slums in the world, is smack in the center of Delhi, one of the reasons in a city with terrible transportation that has made it so attractive for people to build makeshift housing in an area where there is no water and electricity service. Governments need to start providing these services to all residents and cannot simply turn a blind eye to people that are there illegally. But that is diverging on another topic. What I would like to discuss now is how the jurisprudence of health and human rights is contributing to a change in perspective more generally from a negative approach to a more positive approach for the discourse. Rights have traditionally been viewed as negative liberties or a back-off approach from state actors. However, this traditional approach is, in my view, quite fallacious for what is a right without the capacity to effectuate it. If both the weak and the powerful are provided the same rights, it only serves to entrench inequality and subject positioning. How has the jurisprudence of health and human rights forced the questions of capacity and enforcement and contributed generally to a more positive-centered rights discourse? Well, a lot of what you're asking right there is basically it's it's going to the history of the difference between civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. Right. So for decades, civil and political rights were established human rights and economic, social, and cultural rights were viewed more as programmatic rights. And it's only within the last 20 years or so, really the late 80s, early 90s, um, when even among the, the more activists, the more um, the theorists, did the justiciability of economic, social, cultural rights be accepted. So it was only then that people realized, you know what, these are rights that you can go in front of a court and argue and, you know, have a judgment either for or against you. Even just that idea did not exist back in the, in the drafting of the covenants. Um, or at least it was not mainstream, the drafting of the covenants. And right. so, and so a lot of the change absolutely has happened in pushing for more of, um, 
how do you make sure that social policy is done for the good of the people? And among economic, social, and cultural rights, access to medicine, uh, uh, the right to health is probably the largest and most complex right that there is. A lot of the of other rights, such as a uh, right to food, right to housing, right to clean water, are uh, determinants of the right to health. And so the right to health has, kind of in, embraces a lot of the different economic, social, cultural rights and is has been the most developed and is right now, I want to say, the most effective tool at using human rights to promote good social policy that affects and promotes the welfare of everyone. Now, when you said there are determinants for health and human rights, and you're talking about the right to food, the right to water, so obviously we need an X amount of liters a day to sustain ourselves, etc. But this is physical health. So we also have mental health. Now, have mm-hmm. you seen much jurisprudence with regard to the right to mental health and how NGOs and activists and lawyers are working to provide people with mental health rights? Uh, unfortunately, there's very little development. Um, my mother is a psychologist, and so this is one area where I've just been greatly disappointed. Uh, the right to health activists, a lot, a lot of them came out of access to medicine movements, whether it was focused around people with HIV, or now what's more common are movements for people with uh, hepatitis C. And when you're dealing with access to medicine, you're very you know, you're very physically oriented. You're focused on the physical body. You're talking about access to physical drugs. And everyone acknowledges that there's mental health concerns as well, but those are just not people's fortes. And so there's not as much work done on them. There is definitely some work. I'm not trying to dismiss it entirely, but it often has to go to extreme levels. So the European Court of Human Rights, for example, has uh, found cases where uh, a, typically prisoners are are who have suffered such mental health con, um, traumas are found to have experienced cruel and human integrating treatment. So when the mental health suffers to that level, then there is a human rights protection. Um, but in a in the way that right to health focuses on the physical body, like how most people care about that in terms of social policies, in terms of um, access to, in terms of a positive right rather than the negative right, there sadly is very little work done on it. Right, mental health is mostly seen as a negative right, not to cause someone severe mental harm. And it would be hard to frame it as a positive right, much harder than the physical aspect. You need a certain amount of food, a certain amount of water. I mean, we don't really know what a person needs for proper mental health. That's true. I mean, part of the issue is just that the science is not quite there, or at least uh, maybe the science is there, and I'm personally not aware, but that knowledge has not trickled down to the general populace. You know, ignorance of even basic issues of mental or common issues of mental uh, illness like depression are rampant. And until society has a general understanding of those core uh, problems like depression, then there's not much of a hope to getting a more fleshed out and comprehensive mental health policy. Right. So let's move on to, we were talking about access to medicine as a right to health. Now, the Lawyers Collective has litigated for access to medicine in India, and it has utilized the Indian patent law to its advantage in this way. So the Indian patent law is a little particular. It has Section 3D, which prevents against evergreening, and it also has an ability to provide compulsory licenses. So the Lawyers Collective has been very successful in recent litigation with providing life-saving medicines. Can you elaborate a bit further on the cases? This has been a core part of Lawyers Collective work. 
since Anand Grover started first, one of his first tasks was working with people with HIV and getting them just basic treatments. Um, he saw that a lot of the stigma, that there was so much stigma that made it so that they could not get access to even just basic care. And then as he fought against that and make sure they could get basic access, the next step was realizing that a lot of the drugs that they needed were not available for typically intellectual property reasons. And so there has been a, a big push at Lawyers Collective for many years to increase access to medicine by fighting, in their eyes, frivolous patent claims. Obviously, the patent companies themselves will not consider them frivolous. One of the landmark cases that, that this came up to was in against Novartis in 2013. And what happened in that case was that India had accepted, uh, you know, India was a member of the TRIPS agreement, uh, but it had also embraced an approach of wanting to promote access to medicine. In fact, it had not allowed patentability on um, drugs for a period of time. And in the Novartis case, it basically cemented the idea in case law that you need to demonstrate a novelty. You can't just be doing a minor change to a drug and then expecting to get uh, another patent, which that's evergreening, as you mentioned. And so with that change in case law, it has been able to push uh, Lawyers Collective and other similar organizations to really force these patent companies to have good claims for patentability. So the current um, wonder drug, Sofosbuvir or Sovaldi in the United States, which is against hepatitis C, in the United States it costs $84,000 a month, um, and India would be insanely expensive. The patent office did not grant uh, Sofosbuvir a, or did not grant uh, Gilead a patent for Sofosbuvir, which completely changes the, the landscape from a access to medicine perspective. Because now the generics that are in India can produce that drug and, depending on the jurisdiction, can export them, bringing that drug to millions, if not billions of people around the world. That's great to hear. This has, of course, brought India, though, head-to-head with the U.S. that made itself the arsenal of intellectual property rights around the world. I'd like to now give listeners a bit of a background in international trade law, which necessarily has impacted public health by restricting access to medicine and also to explain how India has been able to export its generics. In 1994, the TRIPS Agreement, or the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, was annexed to the World Trade Organization. Article 31 of TRIPS allowed for compulsory licenses to be issued by a state for domestic use only in national emergencies, when otherwise the medicines would not be available to the population in need. Now, the issue with this exception was that many states that had national emergencies and required compulsory licenses simply lacked the domestic manufacturing capacity to utilize this exception. For instance, the case of South Africa and its need for HIV-AIDS drugs. This was recognized by member states with the Doha Declaration adopted on November 14, 2001, which requested the Governing Council draft an appropriate amendment. The Amendment Article 31 was finalized in September 2005, which allowed for states to initiate exporting compulsory licenses to states in national emergencies without the domestic manufacturing capacity, which India has utilized to the benefit of public health around the world and, of course, <laughs> its own generic companies. As this amendment was coming out, however, the U.S. negotiated via the back door bilaterally with many states, and a number formally waived their right to do this. Going even further, the U.S. has now negotiated a multilateral agreement that increases intellectual property protection with 11 other states, 
which the U.S. Trade Representative has trumpeted quite blatantly as new rules for global trade that serve to protect U.S. business and property. Just check out their website. What is your opinion with respect to the development of trade law and this Trans-Pacific Partnership in particular as to its impact on health and human rights and access to medicine? What it would do is codify a, uh, a trade program that brings down um, barriers to trade with a lot of them being non-tariff barriers, which is that's the economic term for what most people would call policy choices. So t- the, the actual agreement is huge. There's tons to it. But a key aspect to it is focused around access to medicine. And this is a place that a lot of people were really worried about. The United States was pushing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the United States has one of the highest uh, protections uh, for medicines in the entire world. In the United States, um, most medicines get a 12-year patent, which is pretty much unheard of, I believe, in the rest of the world. Most countries have eight, um, and some of the countries in the Trans-Pacific Partnership have actually zero. Hmm. So... So in what they finally agreed on in the in the release text is a five to eight year protection, depending on some of the drugs. So more standard drugs like um, typical drugs get about a five year development. The more cutting edge biologics get around uh, eight years of protection. And a lot of access to medicine people are concerned. They're, They're much they're relieved over what it could have been. But even this five to eight year protection still means that for the the populations of these uh, 11 or 12 countries uh, are going to have a harder time getting access to medicine. You know, countries like, I believe, Malaysia and Vietnam have no protections, and they're heavily dependent on generics that are made outside of their country. And so it's a, it is a concern. It could be, it could have been worse, but it's certainly still a challenge of what it's going to be like for these countries to transition to five to eight years of patent protection which means that for the average person, the price of these drugs is going to increase dramatically. Or like in the case of Australia that has universal health care, the government expenditures on medicines is going to increase dramatically. So while uh, development people are focused on how the economic growth is going to lead to, uh, you know, uh, relieving the poverty and just bringing people uh, into better conditions, access to medicine people are just are justifiably worried. This is a battle that is, is, looks like it's being concluded. It's probability is that most of these states are going to sign on. And when the TPP, if the TPP does pass, then it will become essentially the new de facto law. It will incorporate all these trips plus aspects into it and other states will then join in, making it the new kind of uh, world agreement regarding intellectual property. It doesn't look like there's going to be an opportunity to open the text again. So from an access to medicine perspective, this might be the best option available is to accept this text and to see how things can progress in the future. Uh, I say that hesitantly because, well, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm hesitant, but until human rights trumps trade law, under the international law system, there's no reason human rights should be underneath trade or, or finance law. But they de facto are. Until that day comes that human rights are viewed as, if nothing else, nothing else, a lower limit, you know, basically a buffer or a safeguard against trade law, then access to medicine and other right to health people are going to have to accept a less than ideal system. And while the TPP is not good for access to medicine, it could have been much worse. I would vehemently agree with you that human rights 
as well as environmental protections need to trump trade law. Unfortunately, the history, if it's telling about the future, has been quite dismal. The general exception to the general agreement on tariffs of trade, the agreement that the World Trade Organization administers, which allows for states to ban or restrict imports in the protection of the natural resources and their population's health, among other factors, has been litigated about 44 times with only, I believe, one successful case being the EU's ban on asbestos and asbestos-related products. Part of this reason is that not only must a state show that it has a viable reason to protect its natural resources, and this limitation is its natural resources and not for the environment or species more generally, thus limiting it only to the state's jurisdiction, but also that the method utilized is the least gap inconsistent, an extremely difficult test. Some prominent failures have included the U.S. import ban on shrimp and tuna using methods that have been shown to cause incidental turtle and dolphin deaths, Thailand's restrictions on the importation of cigarettes to prevent addiction and restrict chemical additives, Canada's attempt to conserve its salmon and herring populations, the U.S.'s restrictions on fuel additives and gasoline in an effort to reduce emissions under the Clean Air Act, and Brazil's restriction on retreated tires. The TPP utilizes the same language for exceptions, which may therefore unfortunately lead to the same fate. Further, we have now around 3,000 bilateral investment treaties that allow multinational corporations, entities that have evaded legal liability under international law, to sue governments in independent arbitration tribunals for alleged breaches of these treaties. Trade still trumps health, human rights, and environmental protection, and unfortunately may continue to do so. I definitely agree, but I do actually want to just at least end this on one positive. So one of the big concerns was on the interstate dispute system, the ISDS. So this is where there's been a lot of media attention, for example, when, you know, some corporation sues a state for enacting some public policy that can restrict their economic benefit, you know, their profits. And so, like, for example, one of the really big famous ones is Philip Morris uh, suing Australia because Australia wanted to impose plain packaging requirements on cigarettes, which has been found through scientific studies to decrease smoking. Philip Morris said, you know, this was a violation of their rights. And when they lost in domestic court, they sued using a, a bilateral investment treaty between Hong Kong and Australia. Well, the one good thing about the TPP is it makes it very, it, it has a strong buffer that basically excludes a lot of public health regulation, sadly not human rights or right to health, but at least public health regulation from the ISDS system. It doesn't expli explicitly say this is not within the jurisdiction of these dispute um, mechanisms, but it puts a big, it, it definitely bolsters that argument saying that it's outside. And with the recent win of Australia against Philip Morris in that dispute settlement system, that the the dispute settlement system I don't think will be a major concern for, for public health advocates in the future as it was in the past. Moving now on to another topic, in fact, moving back to our discussion of mental health rights, we were discussing how difficult it is to make mental health justiciable. However, one very patent violation of mental health that would be easy to frame are situations where states deny a person's sexuality and discriminate on the basis of sex, sexuality, and gender. The Lawyers Collective has recently litigated to overturn an egregious law in the Penal Code, Section 377, that is a heritage from the British and that has had the effect of criminalizing homosexuality. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about this constitutional case and its current status? So yes, this was called the the Nas Foundation case. And the Nas Foundation is an NGO that was developed to basically uh, provide services and support for uh, the LGBT community. A lot of the work was focused around uh, HIV treatment, which is how my boss uh, got into the access to medicine world uh, and focused on helping that, especially for um, uh, sexual minorities. And one of the big issues is that with, with Section 377, which criminalizes sodomy, so it technically does not say anything about sexual minorities, but obviously it is a law that is much, much more punitive against sexual minorities than against heterosexual couples. And the law was incredibly, was while, while there's few uh, prosecutions brought under that law, it was absolutely a tool used by police, by certain community members to blackmail or threaten LGBT, particularly gay men. When the high court overturned it in what, in my opinion, is a beautiful judgment that really promotes the ideas of human rights and human dignity, it led to a, a wave of excitement from the LGBT community. For, for the first time ever, they were free to come out, basically. Uh, there was this large coming out period. People felt that the stigma, while not gone entirely, of course, was lowered to the point that, you know, they could start pushing back against it. It didn't look like a wall anymore or a, a, an absolute wall. Um, so it was, it was a great success. It was, uh, the, it was a sea change, as mentioned. And, but while the high court judgment was absolutely amazing, uh, it was overturned by the Supreme Court in what I consider an appalling judgment, not simply because I disagree with it, but because the judgment was written by one judge of a two judge panel that basically did not have any reasoning. He would, he looked at different previous judgments and would essentially do whole page excerpts and conclude, therefore, this law is constitutional, which is what the question was. It was, the Supreme Court construed it in a very narrow way that, you know, was the, was section 377 constitutional and has essentially found that there wasn't enough evidence to demonstrate it was unconstitutional. So by default, it is constitutional. And, and this court, was challenged by the following Supreme Court case, correct? Th this particular judgment. Yes. So then there was there was a, a challenge to that. However, the um, I don't know the proper term, but the the tabling or the timing of that challenge hasn't has been constantly delayed to the point that it hasn't come up yet. The, the arguments have not been done yet. And I know that part of this is because of political reasons. That I know that um, the current uh, judges are a little concerned about the political implications, especially with more conservative government in place. Um, and I know that uh, on lawyers' collective side, there's also some strategic concerns as well. Now, when you say strategic concerns on the part of the lawyers' collective, were you implying the current government investigation of the lawyers' collective's foreign funding? The government is currently alleging that there are discrepancies in the lawyers' collective's filings under the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act and that Indira J. Singh's service as additional Solicitor General boosted foreign contributions to Lawyers Collective in violation of a government official receiving foreign funding, even though the funding was to her NGO and not to her personally. Do you see this investigation as an intimidation tactic from the Modi government? To answer the question, I want to actually focus more not on Lawyers Collective itself, but on what has happened to Greenpeace India. What happened basically is that with the new government, the Modi government that came into place, it wanted to promote 
a conservative, uh, development-oriented economic policy, very kind of top-down, trickle-down economics type of approach, and essentially called opponents to this uh, enemies of the state. You know, they, they are working against the interests of India and have gone so far as to freeze the assets of, of uh, Greenpeace India and not allow some of its activists to go speak abroad about their activities. The government has has lost whenever it's tried to do any legal maneuvers against Greenpeace, but it can definitely bring pressure against organizations. And Lawyers Collective is, is feeling that now. Um, I don't want to say Lawyers Collective is being targeted unjustifiably. You know, I might have my personal opinions on that. Um, because right now the government is mostly doing soft threats. So far as, as far as I know, there is no, nothing extra legal or, or nothing that's specifically punitive. They're, they're just using the bureaucratic state as a way to be obnoxious and slow down the, the work of Lawyers Collective. And if there's any findings against Lawyers Collective, that would be used to shut them down. So Lawyers Collective is being forced to be very careful at this state. However, Everything that they do there is on the up and up. I I don't have a doubt that they're going to get past these procedural hurdles. Um, so it's a frustrating time. But you know what? If if you don't make enemies in your work, you're probably not doing important enough work. <laughs> right. History has told us that. So are other organizations also being targeted? The, the bureaucratic machine being utilized against them? Yes. Um, I remember that um, there's... For example, one of the things they did is that for a lot of NGOs that um, were late or basically did not fill in their, their regular periodic reports, like uh, annual reporting that's required, they uh, stripped them of their license, essentially, you know, decertifying them as an organization. Uh, for it, it did allow organizations to come back, but it's basically put the onus on them to make sure that they follow, you know, they cross every T and they dot every I, otherwise the state will make their lives much more difficult. That's terrible. But and, we didn't expect much from Modi, yeah. particularly when you think of his history as governor. Mm. So, now, I also, yes, I'll sorry. just mention uh, one of the things that they're targeting is not just organizations themselves, but a lot of the lifelines, the financial lifelines. So I, in particular, Ford Foundation, which is one of the larger supporters of Laurie's Collective, was targeted as basically as as a common critique of a Western donate donor organizations as meddling in the affairs of a developing country. And it makes it uh, difficult for any organization that is associated with one of these Western funders to operate. It just casts suspicion on them, even when it's not justified at all. Right. And organizations rely on their funding to be able to continue their work. So it's really hitting them at the crux of where it matters. Absolutely. Yeah, that's terrible to hear. So I hope that a solution is found soon or even better that they change the government in India somehow. So now going back to the issues with respect to transgender people in India. Now, in your opinion, the recent law that has allowed for people to identify as a third gender... Now, is this progressive? Is this system going to be wholly voluntary or is the other category going to be or can it be utilized so to deny people that identify as either women or men being able to identify as that particular sex and have to identify as other? From my understanding of Indian culture, and this is where I accept that I am a foreigner that has only lived there for a year and a half, 
um, it, the, the society, the legal structure that would be, that is being put in place, uh, while one could critique legal structures at all times, um, it will not be nearly as binding or restrictive as the social norms that are already in place. So already there is, uh, socially, traditionally a recognized third gender in India. The, the term is the, the hedra. And it's already kind of socially like that because that concept already exists. People just are by social norms pushed into male, female or hedra. Um, with of course the majority of the vast majority of people being pushed into male or female and anyone that's going toward hedra as, um, treated as an other and discriminated against. So one can argue from, you know, from a very, uh, a very left position that yes, this law, you know, should be, we, you know, ideally we should be getting away from concepts of man, woman and, you know, uh, gender, gender at all in law. But from a more, um, I want to say realistic, but let's say just say a more incremental perspective. This is a huge win uh, because it basically recognizes in law the current discrimination that exists. And then it allows legal mechanisms to come into place to combat that stigma, to combat that discrimination and to give the people that are third gender an opportunity to to uh, be a part of society uh, just like any other person. Right. That would be fantastic. And also it would allow for affirmative action on their behalf. Absolutely. Should be. So hopefully we see that. Now, India has a lot of discrimination against women. The Lawyers Collective has written extensively on dowry killings and domestic violence in India. And Indira has opined that the courts have looked for the perfect victim so that a murdered woman receives justice, but that women that have been abused and are escaping violence but are still alive are faced with rampant discrimination from police and the judiciary. Now... I know that you've only been in, in India for a year and a half, and as you know, a, a Westerner, you have your opinion. But how do you see the main problems that women face in India, and what, what is needed to curb this violence? Well, I want to take one step back there uh, to try to answer that question, um, especially as a if I'm trying to impose foreign perspective, I'm I'm going to miss something big, and this was big eye-opener that I got from uh, my boss, Anand. His major critique of the Indian uh, approach to respecting other people is that India has not grasped the concept of human dignity like the West has. In the West, and I want to, probably a lot of this comes from uh, Christian theology, uh, everyone has a, has a basic dignity that deserves respect, and it promotes a lot of uh, a sense of equality. India never got that. And so not having equality is perfectly fine in many people's eyes. In fact, many people believe that the world is set up in an an equal way and that certain people are at the top and certain people are at the bottom. And the caste system of India absolutely reinforces this perspective. So when you have an idea that inequality is okay in in terms of people, obviously you apply that to gender and you can, you know, have one gender over another. So, while a lot of work can be done focused on, you know, promoting women's rights, which a lot of work does need to be done, um, there, you have to have this basic aspect of human dignity that is just missing. So that's one thing that I hope will change in time, but obviously it's something that's so significant. So it would be a, a sea change perspective that it'll take a lot of time, you know, generations before that happens. So there needs to be a huge cultural sweep and any legislative change 
or procedural change will just be negligible if the culture doesn't provide the right climate for it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the issue here we're talking about is cultural, social, and not legal. In fact, one of the problems that India has is that oftentimes it, it the courts give excellent judgments. You know, from a human rights perspective, it is exactly what you want to hear. Legally, it's, a, it's phenomenal. But then the actual implementation of these judgments is either not done or it's actually just simply impossible. The resources don't exist. And so that's where a lot of the, the fall happens is that there, the implementation on the ground doesn't, doesn't occur. And for that, you need to have grassroots perspective. You know, you can't have a top down approach and expect the culture to change. That won't happen. So in a place like India, it needs to be bottom up. And so there are plenty of people that are working on, um, women's rights and respect for women, but there are so many different ways that women face discrimination and uh, difficulty from, you know, from their birth with sex selective abortion up until, you know, what could be their, the, like if the, if their um, husband dies, you know, there's the tradition of throwing yourself on the funeral pyre, which while illegal uh, is still, you know, comes from an ancient uh, story of a woman that was so devoted that she did that. And, you know, by view, by having that story and perpetuating it, it's praising this action, which is basically dehumanizing the woman. You know, her her role is subservient to her husband. And yeah, changing this is gonna it would be a social change, and I can't even get to all the aspects that would be necessary to get, make that happen. Moving back to health and human rights more generally, before we were discussing how a positive capacity centered approach was needed with respect to rights for health. But one of the other constraints in the international human rights field is that rights only bind state actors, but many private actors impact upon and violate people's rights. One prime example are corporations, which are private entities but affect our health in a multitude of ways. For instance, their products may be defective or have ingredients that cause ill health. They may pollute the air, soil, and water of a particular region and through that pollution impact on people's health. They may have egregious conditions for their workers that directly affect their workers' health, including but not limited to inadequate safety of their equipment and the premises where they're working. What is needed to address this inadequacy and what kind of framework is necessary on an international level to hold corporations accountable for their human rights abuses and their impact on people's health? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, I got a simple answer for you. What's needed is an international instrument that can impose binding obligations on corporations. Uh, there's a piecemeal approach that is occurring all over the world right now. And this, this hodgepodge you know, collection of moral and legal obligations is incrementally making things slightly better, but it's it's not going to be enough. It, it won't be until we have an international uh, instrument that imposes these obligations that therefore you have universality uh, and that it's a universal recognition that comes with that. So you have recognition, you have the, the enforcement. And you would need to enforce it against a parent in order to have proper accountability and the ability to provide proper reparations to affected individuals. Numerous times, the parent with the big pockets has let the subsidiary handle the legal obligation, even though the parent could direct the subsidiary to ensure that they were not violating people's human rights. And the subsidiary lacks the coffers to provide any reparations. This occurred when Union Carbide absolved itself from all responsibility from the horrendous Bhopal disaster in 1984, which was a result of inadequate maintenance at one of their factories. Several litigations have been pursued to find Union Carbide and now Dow Chemical, its successor, responsible but without any success. Without parent accountability, we'll effectively always come short. 
But I mean, what, where is the political will for this framework? I think it would be very hard to establish, no? Well, I mean, uh, yes, the answer is hard. But uh, the political will is somewhat there. So the Human Rights Council actually passed a resolution to develop a working group to look into making this a uh, binding instrument. This was promoted by Ecuador and is is uh, or is pushed by Ecuador and it is supported by a number of typically developing countries um, and strongly opposed by the United States, unsurprisingly. Um, but there is actually one a surprising potential ally of the EU. The issue is the EU wants these obligations to be both uh, international and domestic, while other actors like Ecuador want it to be only on the international. So only it'll only work as an interstitial gap filler. It won't be applicable within a jurisdiction. As a human rights advocate, I totally am a fan of as much um, as as broad of an implementation as possible, both international and domestic. I agree with you, but mm-hmm. it, it would also be a constitutional issue in many countries because they would, if the executive signs it, then sometimes the legislature will have to actually ratify it, and that's where they have troubles domestically. Definitely. But but actually, here's the thing that, you know, everyone thinks that it's going to be this very hard top down approach. You know, how do you impose obligations on corporations? You know, are these um, subjects or objects of international law? A lot of those questions are, I want to say, actually irrelevant. We have lots of obligations on corporations. Tons and tons of them exist. They exist in the domestic sphere. And for, you know, going back a long time, that could be, you know, plenty of, you know, that could be sufficient, you know, using the regulatory system of the state, uh, criminal prosecutions in, in unusual cases, and then, you know, the, the like a tort system for most cases. And the problem then, of course, is when you go internationally, how do you, what do you do? Well, if you have a universal system that, you know, creates these international norms, and each state then it has the opportunity to implement them, then what you're creating is not a perfectly flat um, obligations that exist all over the world, but you're getting something pretty close to a, a level playing field where each country is able to implement these norms in a way that's relevant for them. You're absolutely right. You have to get something passed um, by the by the state. But the International Covenant of Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights was able to be passed um, with a number of countries opposing it, and there were a number of challenges. And what the approach I'm basically taking uh, emulates how the right to health and a number of other other rights had very little juris, uh, jurisprudence or just just knowledge of these rights when they were first crafted. But over time, this knowledge was developed. The just jurisprudence developed, and you have some states like South Africa, which incorporated the right into their constitution, and thus as one of the leading jurisdictions on the right to health, on developing the jurisprudence of the right to health. You'll have other states do that in terms of business and human rights that other states then can follow. So, yes, it's hard, but I don't see it as impossible or as technically as, as focused on the procedure and the tech, the technical aspects as many people do. We are slowly progressing. It is true. It was only in 1948 that the UN General Assembly adopted the Declaration of Human Rights, and it was only in 1976 that the Covenants on International Civil and Political Rights and Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights became effective. Since then, we have established numerous other instruments, including regional instruments for the protection and enforcement of human rights. So the potential for holding corporations accountable is certainly there and hopefully will come a lot sooner than we hope. 
Now, in the interim, what may aid this progression is another database focused on corporate accountability jurisprudence among different jurisdictions. And you have the exact experience necessary from running the Health and Human Rights Database. So this venture may be something to consider. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it at Gravity. It's been very informative speaking with you. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to talk about these things. Thank you also to our listeners. I hope you found this program informative and will join us next time on Gravity. Enjoy the rest of your day.